A couple of years ago, we started looking at small little sections of Acts and then tying them to books in the New Testament, letters written in the New Testament. And that's because uh, the history that we see in Acts lays the context for every New Testament letter that is written. And so the more you understand the context, the more those letters come to life. So, for example, one of the books that we looked at was, in, was James. So we read in James chapter 1, verse 1, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, having looked through Acts, we know that they are dispersed abroad because of persecution. And people like Saul are throwing people in prison for professing faith in Jesus Christ. People are being persecuted to the point of, like Stephen, being martyred, murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. They are spread abroad because of the presence of persecution. But like Tertullian once said, he said, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. These Jewish Christians dispersed from Jerusalem are taking the good news of the gospel with them. And as a result, there are Christian communities that are being formed, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and in Samaria, just like Jesus promised they would. See, it's important to understand that the the Christian church is not the outcome of a man-made plan. The Christian church is the outcome of the fulfillment of a divine promise. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The book of Acts explains precisely how that promise of Christ was fulfilled. So this morning, I want us to pick up where we last left off, in the book of Acts. By this time, Paul has finished that first missionary journey that we looked at together. He's returned back to Antioch. He's already written that letter to the Galatian churches that he visited in that first missionary journey, but now he longs to see them again. A letter is good, but he he wants to see them face to face, and so Paul has a plan. But from the word go, that plan doesn't work quite like he thought it would. Paul, in this process, has to learn what it means to go where God leads. He has to trust in the Lord's direction, even when he doesn't fully or completely understand. I think if there's anything that would be helpful for us to get a better understanding of ourselves, it would be that. What does it mean to to trust in the Lord, to to follow the Lord, even, even if we don't completely understand? So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your kindness and gentleness, for your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word and the truth that is eternal within it. Thank you for the power of your spirit that speaks that truth into the depths of our heart. Thank you for the work of your spirit that transforms our lives. Thank you for the gift of your love and the promise of your peace as you come and dwell within us, that you lead and guide us. 
that you don't leave us to ourselves. So this morning, as we open your word and as we look at the lives of your apostles, Lord, help us to understand how we too might better follow your lead in our life. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, and we'll begin reading in verse 36. After... Paul has finished that first missionary journey. It says, beginning in verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is is Paul's plan, and it's a great idea. He wants to go back and revisit all the churches that were established during that first missionary journey. Journey. And as I read that this week, I thought, isn't that interesting in comparison to what we often see in a lot of the missions movements in our world today, where people are not as concerned about establishing existing churches as they are about planting new ones. It seems as if sometimes numbers matter more than names. But not so with Paul. He knew that to plant a new church, he needed to ensure the establishment of an existing church so that they're standing firm in their faith because a lot of those new churches that needed to be planted should come out of those churches that already existed. So he goes back to those churches and look at what he does in verse 37. And Barnabas was desiring of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along because he had deserted them in Pamphylia on that first missionary journey and had not gone with them to the work. You'll remember Barnabas and Mark, John Mark, were cousins. You'll also remember that Barnabas was well known for his gift of encouragement. And so even though Mark did not complete that first missionary journey, even though he had to leave early and come home, Barnabas, in that loving, encouraging heart, wanted to give him another chance. Paul, however, didn't share the same opinion. Barnabas was focused on what could be. Paul could not get past what had been. You see, he's just unwilling to take someone who's already proven that they aren't reliable. So Paul and Barnabas tried to convince the other to come to their side, but Neither one of them would budge. Look at how it continues in verse 39. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul took, chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Okay, I think it's important to understand here that this sharp disagreement was not a quiet conversation. It was a spirited debate. In fact, in the original language, the the words used to describe this sharp disagreement literally mean violent emotion. The issue was deeply personal to both of these men. You see, Barnabas was passionate about caring for his cousin. He believed in his heart of hearts that that Mark was in a different place and that he could prove to to be faithful in ministry. Paul, however, was unwilling to compromise the mission. He cared 
deeply about the Galatian churches and didn't want anything or anyone to be a distraction to what he wanted to do. So as we we think about either of those perspectives, we should ask ourselves, well, who's right? In some ways, I think they both are. And God will work through their difference of opinion. Paul and Barnabas, as we see here, agree to disagree and they go their separate ways. In doing so, they both fulfill what God has put on each of their hearts. Barnabas and Mark go south to Cyprus. And personally, as I think through this, I think it's a gracious gift from Paul. Because Cyprus is where Barnabas is from. And if you'll remember from their first missionary journey, this is a place that they've already gone. And Mark was with them. And they had a fruitful ministry. In so many ways, I think Paul is giving him the best opportunity to succeed by allowing them to go to that familiar territory while he and Silas go the opposite direction. Instead of going to Cyprus, they go north across the land bridge to the churches in Galatia. It's a more difficult path, and he raises up someone new, Silas, to join him in the ministry. And by God's divine intention, what was originally going to be one missionary journey now becomes two missionary journeys. Look at how it continues in verse 41. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek, and by all accounts not a believer. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in these parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So as we get started here, let me remind you from that first missionary journey what took place in Lystra. If you'll remember, in that first missionary journey, when Paul went to Lystra, one of the things that took place is that there was a man who was paralyzed from birth. And he had listened to the message that Paul was proclaiming about salvation through faith in Christ alone. And there was something in his eyes that Paul saw that made him know that this man believed. That he believed that this God that, that, that Paul was proclaiming could heal him. And in seeing his faith, it says, Paul turned to him and said to him, get up and walk. And he did. Instantly healed. And as you might expect, all the people were amazed at what they saw. And because of their culture and the worship of all the Greek gods and goddesses, they believed in that moment that the gods had come to live among them. And they said that, that, that Paul was Zeus and that Barnabas was Hermes. But Paul explained not only were they wrong about their identity, but they were wrong about their gods. That Zeus and Hermes, along with the, the rest of that Greek pantheon, they didn't exist. Explain to them that they were believing a lie because there's only one true God the maker of heaven and earth. And that God has made himself known through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This was an insult to their cultural 
beliefs. And so they picked up stones and began to launch them at Paul to the point that they beat him unconscious, presuming he was dead, and they dragged him outside the city and left him there. This is Lystra. And the reason is, is because he's more concerned about his brothers and sisters in Christ than his own well-being. He's there because he loves the church. And he will lay down his life for them if he has to. Again. It also happens to be the place where Timothy is from. He grew up in Lystra. Probably a teenager at this time. He was a young man. And it seems evident from other places in Scripture that very likely Paul led him to faith. Now, I don't know if it was because of what he might have seen that day he saw Paul's faith put on display as he was nearly martyred by the people in that city. But somewhere along the line, apparently Paul led him to a place of faith because one of the ways that Timothy is also often referenced in the Scripture by Paul is my son, my son in the faith. And seeing his potential, Paul invites Timothy, this young man, to join him on his missionary journey. But he can only come along if he's willing to be circumcised. We learn here from the fact that, that Timothy uh, came from a mixed marriage. His mom, a believer, was Jewish. His dad, likely an unbeliever, was Greek. And this actually gave him a unique opportunity to relate to, speak to, two different cultures that existed during that time. But he would only have credibility in that Jewish culture if, as a Jew, he was circumcised. Look at how it continues in verse 4. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. For them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. It's interesting here that some of the encouragement that Paul took back to these churches in Galatia was the result of that Jerusalem council that we walked through in Acts chapter 15. If you remember, that council made a very important clarification, which said that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. But wait a second, Paul just said that Timothy needed to be circumcised. So which one is it? Is it circumcision? Which one is it? If you'll remember, the issue that came to the Jerusalem council centered around Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Some of the Jews at that time were insisting that you had to be Jewish in order to be Christian. In order to be saved. But the council determined that's not true. That faith, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek or, or anyone else. You see, in Timothy's case, however, he actually was a Jew. By virtue of his mother. So being a Jew who was circumcised gave him ministry opportunities that he would otherwise not be afforded. Now, it just so happens that we have a live and person example of that reality in our church today. Where's Gary Morris? Is he here? Hi, Gary. Gary is our resident Timothy. <laughs> I love reading Gary's 
newsletter. So Gary is a Jewish Christian who ministers to Jews in the Atlanta area. And in his newsletter, he's always talking about opportunities. He has to talk about Jesus as Messiah in the synagogues there in Atlanta. By virtue of the fact that he's a Jewish Christian, he can go to places that you and I can't go. He can talk to people that you and I wouldn't have an audience with. And the very same thing is true with Timothy. And Paul wants to protect that opportunity that he has. Now look at verse 6. And they passed through the uh, Phrygian and and, uh, Galatia region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And they were come to Mysia, where they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysiah, they came to Trous. The thing I want you to see here is that in visiting these churches, Paul decided after having walked through all the places he had already been before that he wanted to extend his ministry into some new areas. But we learn here that he was forbidden by the Spirit to go to Asia, which would have been to the south. See, they had come from the east. He thought, I want to go to the south to a new area, but he was forbidden by the Spirit. He said, that's okay. We can't go there for whatever reason. We'll go north. But once again, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. We don't know exactly why they were forbidden. Maybe it was health issues. It could have been travel issues. I talked to Mark this week, and there have been plenty of times that we've gone into Mexico hoping to to minister in a certain area only to find that it was inaccessible for any variety of reasons, so have to end up ministering in a different area that was not what we had originally planned. And that seems to be what's going on here. For whatever reason, Paul could not go to where he wanted to go. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Paul was forbidden by the Spirit to speak the message of the gospel to unreached people groups in the world. God did not want him doing a new work in a place of great need. Why? Does that sound okay? Is that all right? What we learn from this account is that God is funneling them to the west. They came from the east. They couldn't go south. They couldn't go north. That only leaves one option. He's funneling them to the west. His no was a doorway to a better yes. It's really important to see in this account how Paul wasn't simply driven by a need because he was surrounded by it. Instead, he was led by the Spirit to go to a specific place. Because no matter how good the opportunities might seem, if God's not in it, if God's not leading, it shouldn't be done. It reminds me of a passage in the end of Exodus when Moses is standing with the people of God. They've been released from slavery. They've been in the wilderness for years, and they can literally see the promised land, and they are anxious, anxious to get there. But Moses tells them, if God is not leading, we are not moving, no matter how good it may seem. Look at verse 9. 
And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So when Roger first asked me and my wife, Terry, to prayerfully consider the opportunity for me to serve in that teaching pastor role as he prepared for retirement, it was no small decision for me and my family. It was a tremendous change of direction and one that we had not been planning for, expecting, or saw coming necessarily. And so when we began to make that decision, we made a point to talk to people that we trusted, that we knew and loved, um, knew us well, and we prayed. We prayed like crazy, but our prayer was very specific. We asked the Lord, we said, Lord, this seems to be the direction you're leading, so we're going to walk in this direction. And would you either consistently confirm or clearly redirect? And we were expectant for him to answer that prayer so that as we walked, we kept a journal. And we wrote down all the ways in which God answered that prayer to the point that I stand before you today many times questioning whether I have the qualifications to serve in this capacity but I never questioned the calling because he made that very clear. And so I believe that he will equip us for whatever he has called us to do, no matter how inadequate we may feel in it. And I believe the very same thing is happening here with Paul. I believe they have been praying for God's direction, and they felt like maybe they needed to go south, and that wasn't it. And they thought, well, maybe we need to go north, and that wasn't it. And all the time, God was answering their prayer. Well, maybe we need to go west, and then he had a vision. I believe that that vision was a confirmation of where God had been leading all along because ultimately he was leading them to Luke. Luke is the man from Macedonia in his vision. He is the author of the words we are now reading in the book of Acts. He is also the author of the gospel of Luke. God told them no to lead them to a better yes. And I just wonder, this is my imagination here, but I just wonder if what Luke would eventually write in the gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, I just wonder if that might have been a tool that God used to take the gospel to the south and to the north in the places where he had originally said no. See, we don't know for sure, but there are some really important lessons that we can learn from this account. The first one is this, and let me encourage you just to write these down as you're taking notes. Here's the first lesson of following God's lead. If we are going to follow God's lead, we cannot take bitterness with us. If we are going to follow God's lead, we cannot take bitterness with us. You see, Paul and Barnabas had to go their separate ways. And I think there was probably a level of frustration in that moment. Paul drew a line in the sand and he said, Mark is not fit for a life of ministry. But Paul left room for reconciliation. He left room for redemption. And we know that's true because of 2 Timothy chapter 2 or chapter 4, verse 11. 
Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy. So he's writing to Timothy, the one he picked up in Lystra, who is now actively involved in leading the churches. And he tells Timothy, only Luke is with me, the one from Macedonia. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. If you're going to follow God's lead, you cannot take bitterness and unforgiveness with you. Because following God's lead requires you to leave room for reconciliation. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ and explains as a part of being an ambassador for Christ, you are a minister of reconciliation. You can't talk about forgiveness if you're holding on to bitterness. So if you're going to follow God's lead... You can't take bitterness with you. You always leave room for forgiveness, redemption, grace. Secondly, if you're going to follow God's lead, you must be willing to take risks. Remember, Timothy was a young man, likely a, a teenager. If he thought Paul, if, if Paul thought Mark was a detriment, he had no guarantee that young Timothy was going to be any better. He had to take a risk that he, in fact, could be committed to a life of ministry. But that's what a life of ministry is all about. It's the risk of bringing other people along. The truth of the matter is, it's a lot easier to do it ourselves. I am terrible at delegating <laughs> because I would just rather take care of it myself. It's a lot easier. It's seamless. I don't have to worry about what everybody else is doing. I'll just do it myself. But God has called his church not to minister to people through people. We do ministry by bringing others along. It's the way the mission is intended to work, and it is risky. And there are failures, and there is redemption. We look at 2 Timothy again, Paul writing to young Timothy, and he tells him, and the things which I've heard from me, that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. There it is. We don't do ministry to people. We do ministry through people. We take the risk of bringing others along. You can't take bitterness, but you do need to bring people. And then finally, you have to let God take the lead. Because remember, just because there's a need, it doesn't mean you need to go. Sometimes God says no, because there's a better yes. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is very familiar. You know the verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. When I think of that statement, we're talking about uh, making your paths straight. To me, that's a path of clarity. My baseball coach used to tell us, look guys, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So run a straight line, right? The idea of a crooked path in my mind as I think about Proverbs is kind of going in this, is a zigzag, going in this direction, open, the, uh, that's not it, must be over here, no, go in this, oh, not, that's not it. And the next thing you know, you're crooked all over the place instead of the tra- straight path of God leading you. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. It's a straight path. But that path requires that you wait on the Lord. That you don't just go and open doors. 
that he makes sure that you don't move until he's in front leading the way, no matter how good it may seem. Take the time to pray. Ask the Lord, Lord, I'm going to move in this direction. Would you consistently confirm or clearly redirect, and I am going to look for your answer. I'm going to expect you to show me the way because you don't want me to guess. You don't want me to be outside your will. You want to lead me into the plan that you have and the purpose for my life. And I believe that, and I'm going to trust that. So I'm going to walk, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to wait. No matter how good the opportunity may seem, make sure God is leading the way. Wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So as we finish up this morning, let me encourage you, and I say this all the time, but I'm going to say it again because it's really important. This song is not something I just want you to read words on the screen and speak them out of your mouth, okay? I want you to turn this song into a prayer. And I believe the song is written in a way that it it really... Even as you sing it, you're going to feel and know and believe that the author's intended that it comes straight out of your heart, not just out of your mouth. And so when we sing this song together about what it means to wait on the Lord, would you please make that your heart's cry? Would you sing that to the Lord, not just as a song, but as a prayer? And do it with sincerity before a holy and loving God who wants to lead the way. Will you do that? Let's stand together and sing. Your soul is satisfied when you rest in Him. And so let me encourage you, and I pray that that song can't leave your mind today, tomorrow, and all through the week, that you sing it over and over again. I will wait for you. On your word, I rely. On your word, I will rely. I wait for you. So my soul is satisfied. And I pray that you just live that out as your prayer all throughout this week. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for that promise that you are with us, that you are for us. Thank you, Lord, even as we learn this morning that sometimes you say no because you have a better yes. And help us to trust in that. Help us to be willing to wait and not take matters in our own hands and to create that crooked path by going in directions that were never places you intended us to go, no matter how good the need may seem. Help us to believe that you will lead us because you want us to be right in the center of your will. And so if that means we need to wait and look and see and pray, which you consistently confirm or clearly direct, we're going to expect that you will answer. Father, thank you for being with us, for being for us, for entering in. Thank you for giving us rest for our souls. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.